We're continuing our 12-week uh, series where we're looking at episodes in Jesus' life where He has encounters with regular people just like you and I. And, uh, and in the midst of those encounters, we're taking a look at how Jesus interacted with those people um, and what we can learn about Jesus to help us love Jesus more, uh, but also what we can learn about how Jesus interacts with a variety of people and how that can help us um, love people the way Jesus loved people. And so this morning, uh, we are looking at John chapter 1, uh, and we're going to be in verses 43 through 51. And I really want us to take a look at this very peculiar paragraph in the Gospels where Jesus sees Nathanael under a fig tree. And so we're going to explore this biblical theme of Jesus uh, seeing Nathanael. And what I'm going to show you is a very supernatural way uh, Jesus observes Nathaniel in a way that uh, elicits a very strong response from Nathaniel. And what I hope to show you this morning is through Scripture is that um, God observes and sees you where you are. And for some of you, that's a great comfort. Um, a God who sees you. For some of you, that's a very terrifying notion. Uh, it may be disturbing to others of you, but, but I want us to see in light of the character of who God is that He sees you where you are and, uh, and that there is a, uh, something for us to take comfort in the fact that God sees us. Uh, a few weeks ago, I met with Guillermo and had a, a really fascinating conversation, learning more about who he is and hearing stories of his childhood. And there's this one story that fit in well with the sermon. And so I wrote it in and I asked him a minute ago if I could share that. And he gave me permission, lucky for us. And uh, it's really a neat story, but it shows the power of somebody seeing you. Uh, when Guillermo was a child in Mexico, he... Uh, there was a river near his house, and his mother had told him not to go near the river. Uh, repeated times, don't go to the river after school. Uh, he couldn't swim for one reason, uh, but it was also just a place where there was danger. And Guillermo kept going there over and over, and, uh, and the, the sort of thing that helped him not go back to the river, there were a couple of things, but one of the stories he told me, uh, was one afternoon after school uh, by this large river, uh, he noticed that there was a horse in the pasture. And uh, with sort of a seven-year-old mind, uh, he noticed that there was a buildup of earth near the horse. And so in his mind, he calculated that he could run up the earth, the dirt mound, and spring onto the back of the horse uh, and ride through the pasture. And, uh, and so... I don't want to give any kids this idea, but, but he did this, and, uh, and I could just see this happening in his mind. As soon as he, I don't know if he, when he jumped, it startled the horse, but he didn't land on the horse. Uh, or if he landed on the horse, he quickly was on the ground. Uh, and then he uh, startled the horse so much that the horse kicked him, uh, and he found himself in this fast uh, tide river, um, just flailing, and uh, no one around, and sort of struggling for water, uh, struggling to keep his head above the water and floating down the river. And, uh, and during this episode, uh, he just, you know, as most people do, when they have these sort of encounters, they, they start to think through their life. And his young life, as he started to think through it, I, he he's thought, I guess his final thought was, my mom is going to be so mad at me <laughs> uh, that I'm, I'm here in this river. And he sort of dropped in the water, couldn't fight any longer. Uh, and he re relayed to me this how out of nowhere he, he saw a hand plunge into the murky water right in front of his face. 
And he reached up and he grabbed it and pulled it out. Uh, and the woman pulled him out of the water. And, and as he got dried off and she pulled him to safety and, and brought him back in, he said, how did you find me? That was one of the questions that he had for her. And she said, as I looked out uh, the window, I saw you. I saw the whole thing happen. Uh, she observed the entire encounter from him looking at the horse, sort of cockeyed, running up the dirt. I'm sure she probably got a chuckle until the horse kicked him and then watching the whole episode unfold, but then not knowing where he was, but just to find. And she said, I just stuck my hand in where I thought you might be. And there he was. You know, the power of seeing someone, of seeing something um, is, uh, is something that we've kind of lost, I think, in our society. How many of you like to people watch? Right? You go to a mall or you go to a public area. Um, on first dates, Julie and I would sit and make up conversations for people across the room. And she would talk for them and I would talk for him. And, and as they would talk, we would just talk for them. Uh, probably revealed too much there, but... Um, but observing people in a way where we would do it in a lighthearted way, observing people in a way that you can see their distress. You know, you, what comes to mind is when Hannah in Judges is in distress in, in uh, Samuel. Uh, she's praying before the Lord and, and, and uh, Samuel um, uh, is her child that she's praying for. And, and someone observing her from across the room and, and seeing the distress on her lips, thinking that she had been intoxicated when actually she was, her soul was just being poured out to God in prayer, Hannah. Um, this sort of seeing people is, is difficult. About a year ago, I went to a seminar on how to coach from a biblical perspective, and it was this seminar designed to train us to listen to people as we're listening to the Holy Spirit. And the, the leader of this seminar had us all come forward and he brought one guy up here and he said, there's a lot of voices in our culture. And uh, he brought a voice up. He said, now this will say, say, this is your boss and start talking to the person in the middle. And so the boss would start talking and then a coworker. So he called another guy up. You're the coworker. Now start talking. And so you got two voices competing. Uh, and now another voice, you come up and you're the culture and you're just describing to this person how they should live and what they should do. And so the culture, the boss, the employee, now you're the spouse. Now you come up and, and yip in his ear about what, what should be happening, what should be going on. And Not to say that spouses yip or anything like that. Don't read that the wrong way. I saw many eyebrows go up as I said that. Uh, bring those eyebrows down just in a, in a good way. You lovingly, affectionately speak to your spouse is exactly what I meant to say. Uh, now you, the child, come up, and by the end of it, we've got a circle of people all talking at one time to the person, uh, and, and the leader of this experiment said, now you, which is the person who's designated just to listen? And so he brought one more person into the inner circle and just whispered in his ear, what, can, what, what do you need to say? How can I listen? How can I come alongside you and just being a listening ear. This is something we miss. Uh, you know, life can feel lonely. Uh, church can feel lonely. You could be in a crowd of people and feel lonely. Has everybody ever felt that way? That you're in the midst of people, people all around, and yet you don't get the impression that people really see you or that no one is really listening to you. You can feel like nobody cares. You can feel like nobody really hears you. You can even feel like nobody even really sees you. 
I was reading in Genesis 16, uh, as I was talking to someone earlier this week, this verse just came to mind, that Hagar, when she struggled with her uh, maidservant Sarai and uh, Abraham's wife, her Egyptian servant, um, they had had a, a real divide, a real fight, and Hagar fled away from Sarai. And the Lord found her in the wilderness and said, uh, and, and said all these things over her and began to speak to her and began to strengthen her and told her to go back and submit to her, to her maidservant. And she said, this is the God who sees me. Uh, another translation from that passage um, could, could also mean, I didn't realize that the God who watches me would intervene with me. Or you are a God who sees me. Or have I really seen the one who sees me? All those different translations demonstrate that Hagar experienced a God who watches over her. A God who sees her. Who sees her in such a way that um, intervenes in her life. That has compassion. That watches over her in a different way than a God who is aloof. And who is standing back and just allowing things to go by. You know, this is a thread through Scripture. A God who sees. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, you know the famous passage when the Lord says to Samuel, uh, as he's choosing the future king, he says, don't look at his outward appearance, right? For the Lord sees in a different way. The Lord looks to the heart and not in the outward appearance like man looks. In Job, there was a dozen verses in Job that describe this, but one in particular, Job 34, 21, for his eyes see the way of a man and he sees all of his steps. Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks down from heaven and He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of all mankind observes them. And we have a seeing God. In Matthew chapter 6, three times He says, Your Father who sees you, what you do in secret, will reward you. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sees the crowd and He has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. On the flip side, there are times when you don't want God to see you, right? Uh, I asked a few people this week, um, what do you think about a God who sees you? And what do you think about a God who sees you? Well, many people said, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I feel comfortable knowing that there's a God who observes all my ways. I don't know if I, I like the idea of a God who sees me, who hears me, who knows my thoughts. That doesn't necessarily bring me comfort. There are times when we don't want God to see us. Psalm 51.9, David said, Hide your face, Lord, from all my sins and blot out all my iniquities. But we can see throughout Scripture that we have a seeing, searching God. Luke 19.10, He seeks to save the lost. In Luke, uh, uh, the prodigal son, in Luke 15, the father is standing on the edge of the field and he's searching for this wayward son. He looks uh, for the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So with that in mind, knowing that we have a God who observes and sees us, let's read this strange passage in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. The Bible says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray for a moment and then take a look at this passage. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are a God who sees. We thank You for this demonstration of You observing Nathaniel in some supernatural way that prompted him to make this declaration. Lord, we pray that You would be our guide this morning. Holy Spirit, that You would be our teacher that as we till the soil of this passage, uh, that as we sort of unearth the treasures that are in it, that you would draw near and you would make the application to our hearts. What is it that you want us to know about you today, Jesus? What is it that you want to speak to us about through this passage? Let us be receptive. Let our hearts be open. And as we uh, open the word this morning, I pray that you would make our hearts fertile for the seed of your word, that it will grow and it will bear bear fruit in our lives that we may become greater uh, and more like you, Jesus, that our sanctification may progress, that we may know you more, and that we may become more like you. For that is the purpose of your word. Place it in our hearts today that we may grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to quickly work through this text. There's a lot here. There's a lot I want you to see in it. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me in John chapter 1. First thing I want you to see is that we have uh, this group of people. Jesus is calling his starting five, right? He's calling his starting five. He's calling uh, James. Uh, He calls John. He calls Andrew. He calls uh, Simon Peter. And he calls Nathaniel. This is the first group of guys that he's calling immediately after he's baptized uh, by John the Baptist. And he's coming back into this area. So Philip, Andrew, Simon, John, and Nathaniel are these Uh, starting five. And there's something I want you to see about this group of guys. Number one, we know they're all kind of teenagers. Uh, It was customary in those days for someone to be married at 18. Um, Who was the only disciple who was married at this time? Peter, Peter, right? Because Jesus immediately goes into Peter's mother-in-law's house and he heals her. Uh, So Peter is the only one who's married, putting the age of most of these disciples around 16 or 17. Is that surprising to you? We see people who change the world, and Jesus is calling to change the world, these young men. Uh, And not only that these guys are young, but but I want you to see something different about them. These guys are waiting for Jesus. There's a whole group of people called waiters. Not waiters, but waiters. They're waiting. 
they're waiting for something. There's a rise of waiters in the intertestamental period, that 400-year gap between Malachi and Jesus. There was something like a hundred messiahs who came onto the scene of Israel, rising up to deliver the people. Most famous of which you probably know are the, are the Maccabees, right? The Maccabean revolt, uh, Judas the hammer, these great stories of these great warrior kings who rise up to defeat uh, these governing authorities. All these false messiahs are coming up, and in the process of that, there are a group of people called waiters. They're waiting for the, for the Redeemer, for the Messiah. Who are the two most famous waiters that we see in the early Gospels? Can you think of who they are? Anna and Simeon, that's right. In Luke chapter 2, we have Anna and we have Simeon, and they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. The famous declaration by Anna in Luke 2.38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and she began to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a whole group of people who are waiting. And some people even say that in the village of Nazareth, there was a, a group about 100 years earlier who were from the village of Bethlehem. And when that city uh, grew out, there was a, a small group of people who were waiting for the declaration of the Messiah. And so they moved their group to the wilderness, to the country. This would have been a, sort of a guerrilla compound in our eyes. This is a group of people that are moving to like Montana, right? They're setting up a settlement somewhere else. And they were there to wait for the Messiah. Why did they do that? And why did they name their village Nazareth? Just allow me a brief uh, deviation in this, in this area. This whole group of people that were waiting that named their city Nazareth. The word Nazareth is a Hebrew word, Natsar, which means shoot. If you cut off a tree and you don't plow the stump, I've got 12 stumps in my yard. And if I don't grind them soon, what's going to happen? Little trees are going to notzer off. They're going to shoot off. A branch will grow from a dead stump. And this is the Hebrew root word for the root of David. And the the prophecies uh, abound. I'm going to read a handful of verses here. The shoot or the branch or the root of Jesse, the branch of David, is an Old Testament thread. Isaiah 11, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Revelation 5 looks back and says, the root of David. Revelation 22 says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Always using this branch, not sir, word. I am the branch of the Lord. Isaiah 4.2 says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Isaiah 11, in that day, the root of Jesse, the, the branch, the notzer of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and all the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that great messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a tender notzer shoot, and like a root out of the dry ground. In Jeremiah 23, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, Uh, In Jeremiah 33, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. In Zechariah 3, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. And in Zechariah 6, 12, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. All of these things traced a line of prophecy that there would be a future king who would rise up from David's ancestors in Bethlehem and would become the future king. 
And so this group of people moved their compound to Nazareth, called it Nazareth, and they were waiters. They were waiting for this line of kings, and nothing had come from them, and so they became like a byword. They became this um, sort of um, eccentric group that moved out into the wilderness waiting for the Messiah. And so Nathaniel says, anything good comes from Nazareth? Nothing has been produced from Nazareth. This was this group of fanatics that moved out to the wilderness waiting for the one to shoot up, and nothing good has come out of Nazareth is this idea. Coincidentally, do you know what ISIS, if, if you were living in the Middle East and you were a Christian, what would they um, paint on your door? It's this um, Arabic letter for Nazarene, the same word, the shoot of David, the followers who are of the root and shoot of David is this idea. And so Nathaniel is asking, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? Now, out of this messianic prophecy comes Jesus. And he becomes that fulfillment of all of those passages I just read and maybe a dozen more that I didn't read. You're welcome, right? Uh, David, uh, the offspring of David, the root of David, the offshoot comes up and this is Jesus. And so these guys were waiting. John um, and Andrew, they had left their fishing business. They had gone to be with John the Baptist, to be his disciples. And John the Baptist said, um, there's one coming after me. And so these guys were primed and ready. And so you remember the passage before, they were waiting for the Redeemer. And so John the Baptist says, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There He is. I see Him. And immediately Andrew and John peel off from John the Baptist and they go to Jesus. And what do they say to Him? Hey, where are you staying? Uh, Jesus, do you mind if we just hang around you for a while? It's about the 10th hour. And they say, where are you staying? And Jesus says what? Come and you're going to see. Come and I'll show you. And He spends a few hours with them and He's tracing this idea out of who He is. And we know that He's tracing this idea of who He is because immediately what do they do? They go find Peter and they say, we found Him. We found the Messiah. We found Him. And so they come and they, they tell um, Peter and Peter um, and they tell Philip and then Philip runs and he tells Nathaniel, we found Him. We found the One, the Messiah. All of this um, strikes a chord with these five guys because they're waiters. They're waiting. They're a part of this group that is waiting for Jesus. And so Jesus calls this primed people. Now I want you to notice this invitation to come and see. Come and see. The C word is, a, um, is a, a thread that I want us to kind of tease out. This idea of come and see. Where have we heard this before? John the Baptist, when he sent the disciples, he is telling them, I see the Messiah. I didn't know who he was, but the Spirit came down on him. And when I saw that, the Spirit told me that this would be the Messiah. And this is him. He saw him. And then Jesus invites the disciples to come and see. Um, in this passage we just read, uh, verse 43, Nathaniel, uh, Philip comes to him and says, come and see. Come and see. This is a process that Jesus invites people to. To come and take a look at who he is. This is still something that Jesus is inviting you to do. To come and see who He is. To investigate the claims of Christ on your life. To come and see. There's a progression in the Gospels. Jesus says, come and see. The next uh, significant thing that He says in this line of disciples is, come follow Me. 
Then the next thing he says is, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Towards the end he says, come and remain in me. Finally, with these disciples, he says, come and die with me. Uh, And then he says, go and make disciples. So you see this deeper progression as we walk with the Lord that we're invited to come and see, to come and follow, to come and follow as He makes us into something different, to come and remain in Him or to abide in Him in John 15, and then to come and die with Him in John 12, and then in this idea to go and make disciples in the same way. Jesus is following this process, and this is the first point, to come and see. He invites Nathan to come and see. Now let's get to this supernatural exchange. Jesus sees Nathanael and he's coming toward him. There's something different about this passage. Immediately, Jesus has information about Nathanael that Nathanael has no idea how he knows this. He says, this is an Israelite in whom there is no trickery. There's no deceit. There's no guile. There's something about Nathanael that Jesus knows. There's, he's not deceptive. He's honest. He's straightforward. He's a to-the-point kind of guy. There's no trickery. This kind of parallels at the end of the passage when Jesus is bringing up Jacob in Genesis 28. And Jacob, whose name means the deceiver, right? Jacob is the grasper of the heel, the deceiver, the tricker, the slippery one is is Jacob's um, name. And so Jesus brings that in at the end, but he contrasts Nathanael to him and says, you are not like that. There's something honest about him. Do you know that your soul will never change? Your spirit, you will never change change until you get to a place where you're honest with yourself. Most people live their whole life with blind spots. Most people live their whole life saying things about themselves and convincing themselves of things that may or may not be true. And the ultimate bearer of what is true about your life is action, is the buildup of what you do. What you do says more about who you are than what you say. And in this passage, Jesus is saying that there's something raw and honest and sincere about Nathanael. And this strikes a chord with Nathanael. How do you know me? How do you know what's true about me? And Jesus points to this experience under a fig tree. Now, I don't have time to tease out the five or six different theories about what under the fig tree means. But let me just say that there's more going on here than what we understand because of the strength of the response that Nathaniel gives. But here's a couple things that under the fig tree might mean. It could literally mean I saw you sitting under a tree. (laughs) Right? There you were. You were sitting under a tree. But not very likely. Sitting under a tree doesn't bring about the kind of response that Nathaniel... He says, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And from that point forward, Nathaniel becomes a follower. Nathaniel becomes the one who will follow Jesus till the end. He's also the disciple known as Bartholomew. Um, He will follow Jesus to the end. And so this is not probable that it's just, hey, I saw you under the tree. That's not necessarily that. There's another um, Old Testament prophecy from Judges 9 where um, one of the prophets is prophesying and he says, Um, You fig tree, come and reign over us. You be the ruler over all of us. And it's this prophetic foreshadowing that Israelites will follow anything in the book of Judges. 
that there is no king, everybody's just doing what he sees fit. And so one of the prophets is saying, hey, let's just call the fig tree the leader of us all. It, it might as well be the ruler. There's no one strong to rule us, so anything can be our ruler. So Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree, couldn't mean that I see you under a variety of kingships. Your passions are ruling over you. Your desires are ruling over you. There's chaos. There's turmoil in your life. Nothing is shepherding your soul. That would fit with his declaration, you are the son of God. You are the king and his fellowship after that. That's one possible idea. Another possible idea is this phrase under the fig tree became an idiom, a common phrase for peace. For peace in the land. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, when there's peace in the land, it says every man will sit under his vine or under his own fig tree. In 2 Kings 18.31, it says every man shall go to his own home in peace under his own fig tree. In Isaiah 36.16, it describes the peace that you will experience when you're sitting in the shade under the fig tree. It's, it's our idea for, do you have a hammock? Is anybody in here, if you have time to sit in a hammock, right, life is good, right? Everything is at peace. Jesus could be referring to this supernatural experience where maybe in some way, in some time, Nathaniel brought his life under the Lordship of, of God and said, I need peace. I need you. I need something. This was a moment when Nathaniel had a, something powerful happened under that fig tree. And Jesus saw it supernaturally. Whether he came under some lordship, whether he struggled to find peace, whether he was struggling with chaos, whether he was being ruled by all these other things, there was a relenting, a yielding, a submissive spirit that happened in his life under this fig tree, and Jesus saw it. Now, many of you have heard my story. I came to faith in Christ from an atheistic background filled with all sorts of... um, Uh, bad moral decisions all throughout my life, and there were lots of things ruling over me in all these different ways. Um, Finally, I came to a point in a garage uh, where I I just came to the end of my um, wits and the end of the bottom of the barrel. I couldn't go further down any longer. Finally, I had to cry out to God and say, if there's a God somewhere, I need you to help me. This same phrase uh, could have applied to me. God saying, I saw you under that fig tree. I saw you in that desperate moment. Guillermo, I saw you in the river. I saw you struggling against the water. I saw you in the current. I saw you. And for me, a person showed up at my door the next day just doing a random door-to-door visitation and led me to faith in Christ. For Guillermo, it was the hand of a woman reaching in to pull him out at just the right moment. But this idea that God sees you and observes you is an idea of compassion that Jesus expressed to Nathaniel. You may feel alone, like nobody sees you. You may feel uh, in turmoil, like the waters within you are unsettled, and there's waves, and there's anchor. Uh, there's no anchor in your life, and you're just like a boat that's sort of tossed around. And this moment could be the moment that you understand that God sees you, that He observes you, that He sees the chaos in your life, that He sees the struggles that you're going through, that He sees the loneliness, He sees the depression, He sees the anxiety, He sees the frustrations, He sees the the war that's battling within you. God is observing all of that in your life and you are not alone. 
He sees the discontentment. He sees the frustration. He sees all the things that you war against in your own life. He sees that. And he is, in his character, sending you relief. Who did he send to Nathaniel? I saw you, so I sent Philip. Who did he send to Guillermo? I saw you, so I sent a woman. Who did he send to me? A stranger, a guy I've never seen before and I've never met since, going door to door sharing the gospel. He sees me and he sees, sends a remedy. You see, a God who sees you is terrible if he doesn't act. A God who sees the chaos of your life and doesn't do anything, doesn't intervene, is, a, is not a comfort at all. But a God who sees and sins is a compassionate, gracious God. In Matthew 9, Jesus saw the crowds and they were harassed and helpless and He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And He said what? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He may what? Send workers into the field. So that He may send people out. You see, a God who sees and doesn't act is a terrible thing. But a God who sees and sins is a, is a God who loves. Many of you may have seen the Tiger Woods article that came out this week. Anybody read that uh, article? A couple of you. Uh, the Secret History of Tiger Woods. Fascinating uh, 30-minute read in ESPN about the turmoil that took place in this famous golfer's life in a 10-year span. Really fascinating. Uh, As I read that, I couldn't help but think of my friend um, and evangelist Mark Cahill. Mark Cahill came and spoke at our sending church, Riverside. And as Mark Cahill described um, his opportunities, Mark Cahill has got to witness to Michael Jordan. He's good friends with Charles Barkley. He played basketball with him at Auburn. He's this big 6'6". Uh, evangelist, a very powerful evangelist, and through this relationship, he's got to witness to some of the most powerful men, uh, most influential sports figures in our time, uh, and he had opportunity to witness to uh, Michael Jordan and to, uh, I'm sorry, to Tiger Woods at a commercial shoot. You remember that commercial where Charles Barkley has this horrendous golf swing? <laughs> and uh, sorry, that was probably lost on 80% of you, but but. Mark Cahill was there, and Tiger Woods' stunt double was doing the acting. And so uh, it's this juggling golf thing. I'm, I'm messing up here. But, but over in the corner, as that's being filmed, Mark Cahill is sharing the gospel with Tiger Woods. As that commercial is being shot, this is 2006, 2007, right in the period where his father has died, where he's struggling, where he's really at a point of making a decision of which way he's going to go. God sends Mark Cahill into his life at just the right time. You know, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 8 years ago, uh, I, I went to the mountains of northern Pennsylvania Uh, I had come to a place where I really needed to deal with a lot of childhood issues that were holding me back, a lot of childhood memories that I had had just never really um, confronted. And in the process of that, I went to a mountain retreat, and I just was going to hold these 20 or so memories 
up to the Lord and I was just going to pray through every memory that I had been through counseling and gone through all these things for the Lord just to help bring healing to my life, a very healthy process. So as I was going through this, I was holding up all these memories and bathing them in prayer. Lord, what about this? And what about that experience at five? And what about that experience at six and seven and eight? And all these damaging things that had happened to me in my childhood as I was holding them to the Lord in prayer, suddenly all these new memories were sprinkled in. A friend invites me to vacation Bible school, and all I remember is Kool-Aid and Moses and flannel grams. A year later, another friend invites me, a bad memory, and then there's an invitation to a revival. And I remember sitting in the back of the room, and I remember the speakers on the wall that hung said PV, and the P was shaped in this kind of weird triangular way. And I also remember at the end of that, this um, passionate revivalist said, come forward if you need Jesus to save you. And and I, I remember in the back just feeling drawn. I had to go up, and I didn't. I remember friends sprinkled along the way that that would invite me to church or would tell me about who God is and maybe a piece of give me a book. Then and I remember sounding out as a child in this Sunday school literature that somebody gave me the word reconciliation through Jesus. All of these memories sprinkled in at the worst time of my life, at the most desperate time, God was sending a message of reconciliation. God sends people, and the proof of His observation is the fact that you're listening today. I don't know where you are. You may be in chaos. There may be turmoil. You may be the person who God is sending. There may be somebody in your neighborhood or in your street or in your family or somewhere somebody is asking for help and they're desperate. And God, you may be the answer to that prayer. A couple of application points about the God who sees you. Take comfort in the God who sees you. Take comfort in the God who sees you. You can trust His character. You can trust His character. You should take comfort in the fact that God sees you. There was a song years ago by Babby Mason. I'll probably date myself here a little bit, but uh, the, the lyrics are powerful. It says, All things work for our good, though sometimes we can't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and when you just can't see Him, remember you're always alone. And here's the chorus. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand and when you don't see His plan, when you can't trace His hand, what does it say? Trust his heart. You can trust his heart. This this lyric, this chorus continues to say to us that we can take comfort in the God who sees you. That though things may seem rough right now, he sees and observes and is not leaving you alone. The second thing, application point I want you to see, I want you to fight off discouragement. Because for some of you, knowing that God sees you and yet he doesn't respond to you in exactly the way you want him to, at the time that he wants you to, it it makes you angry. It probably frustrates you that God hasn't redeemed you or saved you or rescued you or helped you or in some way acted when you thought he should. I know that that applies for me many times. You remember Mary and Martha when Jesus waited and came to the tomb four days later and they said, if you had only been here, he wouldn't have died. 
Where were you when we needed you? You didn't respond when we wanted you to. And they were terribly frustrated. Have you ever felt frustrated that God didn't intervene when you wanted Him to, in the way He wanted you to, at the time frame? We, we can get this way very easily. So I want you to fight off discouragement when you know that God sees you and He doesn't do exactly what you want Him to do, exactly when you want Him to do it. There is a day of comfort. And sometimes you have to walk through difficult things to get there. The third thing I want you to see and apply in this passage is that you can take refuge in the God who sees you. It's a great hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Um, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Do you know why Nathaniel had a good ending? Because he came and he saw. Do you know why Andrew and John experienced life in Jesus? Because they came and they saw. Do you know what might be holding you back? Is maybe you've never taken refuge in Jesus. Maybe you've never gazed upon who He is and yielded to Him in full submission. Most people who have made a profession of faith and have struggled in their walk with God, there's usually something holding them back. Maybe it's unforgiveness, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's fear, maybe it's pride, maybe it's the unwillingness to confess that they need a Savior, but something pulls them away from fully submitting their life to Jesus. Those who experience the greatest life in Christ are those who are fully yielded, fully submitted. What is keeping you from taking refuge in Christ? The fourth application point for us is to receive the remedy that God offers to you, even if it's not what you wanted. (laughs) Remember Hagar? She was running away from her servant, boss. And what did the Lord tell her to do? Hey, go back and submit. Ouch, right? She was running back to Egypt, running back to family, running back to freedom, running back to the world, running back to her culture. She was running away from the very thing that God told her to run back to. What's the remedy that God has offered you? Is it too simple? Is it too obvious for your sophisticated mind? Is it too much for you to... Pride is in the way. You remember Naaman when he went to Elijah to be healed? And Naaman, uh, Jeremiah didn't even come out, right? He just said, hey, tell my servant to tell him, just go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. Just go dip seven times. And he walked away sad, saying, aren't there rivers where I live? Couldn't I have just gone to dip myself in the river? And his servant says, if he told you to do something hard, would you do it? How much more will you just do the simple thing he says and do it? Sometimes the remedy is so easy. And Naaman went and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times and was clean. Sometimes God is obvious. And He's sending you the right word at the right time through the right person. And you just, it just, you're impenetrable. It just doesn't penetrate your mind. You just can't submit. Receive the remedy that God offers you, even if it's not the one you wanted. It could just be as simple as you submitting and yielding to authority that He's placed in your life. The final thing I want you to see is is to look forward to the seeing God who sees you. 
Look forward in eternity to your, um, to your redemption in Christ in heaven. You know, there's this wonderful passage in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus is visiting John on the Isle of Patmos, and he's, uh, he's telling him these messages for the future, for these churches. And he's saying, repent, and if not, I will come to you, and I will, I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that is the one who continues to walk and, and maintain their relationship with me throughout, to endure in me. I will give some of the hidden manna. Listen to this last phrase. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know what that says to me? God has a white stone with a new name for you. And it will be something extremely personal. Something between only you and the Lord. Something that proves to you that He is the God who sees you and knows you. What's your name going to be? What's the name that God will give you? What's it going to be? If you're in Christ, it's going to be something personal. There's going to be a moment in eternity, if this verse is true, that He's going to come to you, and you and you and God are going to have an intimate moment where just the two of you have this exchange where He gives you something personal that says, I saw you. I watched you through this stage of your life when you walked through difficulty, when you walked through pain, when you endured through trial, when you continued through a difficult period, when you, when you continued to maintain your relationship with me. I saw you and I know you. And here's your name. Isn't that a neat thought? Look forward to the God who sees you and who knows you. Father, we thank you for this passage today. We thank you that that in many ways, seeing, having a God who sees us could frighten us. That in many ways, having a God who observes us so intimately could terrify us. But knowing your character, knowing that you are a God of love, knowing this about you, and knowing that you offer us redemption and mercy and grace through the sacrificed body of your Son, Jesus Christ, Knowing all that causes us to love you passionately. We thank you that you know us. That you are the God who sees us. We thank you that not only do you see us, but you send people to us. You send people to us so that you may make known to us the way of salvation. That we may experience a right relationship with you. God, all around this room, there, there are broken hearts, there are frustrations, there is pain, there is questioning, there is depression, there is anxiety, there is chaos. All around, there is a lot of things. I thank you that you are not a God who sits on the sidelines and does nothing, but you are a God that we can take comfort in because you see us. Thank you, Lord, for your remedy. May we receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen.